You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey everyone, future Zoe here. Welcome to the episode. We are so excited to share this one with you. This is an interview that we did with Dr. Kate Hartman. She is a scholar of Buddhist studies, assistant professor of religious studies in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Wyoming, and she really knows her stuff. You can find all of her work and everything she's been involved in, YouTube videos, podcasts, all that good stuff at drkatehartman.com. Definitely check her work out. But Anyway, this was intended to be a single episode, but of course, in our, you know, fashion, it ran long. So we've split this up into two parts, and the first half is a series of questions where we talk with Kate and ask her about what medieval Buddhism looked like and, you know, what Buddhism looks like in general. And then the second half is where we go through a story from the Great Tang Records on the Western Regions with Kate. Part one is our chat with Kate and our questions for her, and part two is the story, so definitely check both parts out and check out all of Kate's great stuff at drkatehartman.com, and enjoy! There we are. All right. Hello, everyone. I am Zoe, a professional game developer, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University. And we are two weird medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into TTRPGs, novels, D&D, whatever you're working on. And today we actually have a fabulous guest with us, the wonderful Dr. Kate Hartman. Dr. Professor, what do you prefer? Professor Hartman, Dr. Hartman. In this context, I'll go by Kate. Sure. Sounds good. So before we introduce Kate more formally, don't forget that we have a bunch of cool ways you can get in touch with us. We have our Patreon if you want to support the show and get cool TTRPG D&D downloads and content. We also have our Discord, so if you want to join the conversation and follow along with us, all of that stuff is there. You can find all that in the show notes. Of course, we also have our Instagram, Twitter, Whatever else, aside from Twitter that is now dying, we have a Mastodon, we have a Tumblr, all of the above, you can find us on the internet, you know how it goes. So with that, let us jump straight in to, I guess, Mac, you want to introduce our topic and then we'll we'll bring Kate in? Sure. So as longtime listeners may remember, or people who have listened through our back catalog, One of the earlier texts that we read a couple excerpts from is the Great Tang Records on the Western Regions by Xuanzang. So I'm probably pronouncing wrong because I am tone deaf and so tonal languages are (laughs) beyond me. They're hard. They're very hard. I will not correct you. (laughs) But we don't really have the educational background, so this was kind of a flying too close to the sun thing, which is why we haven't come back to it in a while, because we feel we didn't have the knowledge to properly appreciate and discuss what we were reading. So when at Kalamazoo, we, or Zoe at least, shared a panel with Dr. Hartman, and we found out that she is an expert in this area, or at least in adjacent <laughs> subjects, in, in subjects that include this text. Closer than we are, shall we say. Much, much closer than we are. <laughs> we thought 
thought it would be a good idea to have her on so we can try and provide some of the background information and context that we ourselves were not able to provide. Yes. So, Kate, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and just to give some idea of my background and possible qualifications for this, I have a PhD in Buddhist studies that I got at Harvard University. My specialty is Tibetan Buddhism, but specifically the history of pilgrimage within Tibetan Buddhism. And so this record of a Chinese pilgrim to India is something that I've not studied you know, super closely. I'm not an expert on this text. I'm certainly not an expert in Chinese Buddhism, but I do know at least something about Xuanzang and can fill in some of the perhaps historical context to help in appreciating this text and putting it to use role-playing games. Yeah, fabulous. Yes, and I'm currently a professor at the University of Wyoming here in Laramie, Wyoming. Go Pokes. Alrighty. So. So to the end of providing some background and some additional information about this text, what can you tell us about Xuanzang? Yeah, so Xuanzang is one of a number of Chinese pilgrims that go from China to India in search of the Dharma. And by Dharma, I mean generally the Buddhist teachings. And so I'll back up to the, the really big picture of Chinese Buddhism during this time. So Buddhism starts in India around the 5th century BCE, give or take 100 years. It starts traveling along trade routes pretty quickly. This gets accelerated in the 3rd century BCE by the Emperor Ashoka, who conquers a lot of India and very publicly converts to Buddhism and sends out missionaries to various places. But also you just have merchants and travelers traveling along the information superhighways of the day, the Silk Road, mostly sort of overland, but then also sea routes. And so Buddhism appears in China fairly early on. We have texts dated to, you know, the third century BCE from India in China at that time. But for a long time, Buddhism in China is this weird foreign religion. If you sort of read any Buddhist text, they have this elaborate cosmology in which the teachings make sense, right? So the Buddha will talk about, you know, the realms of rebirth and this and that and rebirth and whatnot. But you got to imagine if you're in China in a period where you don't have these same concepts of rebirth, you don't have these same kind of cosmological ideas, all of this Buddhist stuff just seems strange and weird. And so it exists as this total minority thing for hundreds of years. So to bring in kind of an analogy that our listeners might be a little more familiar with, this is like early Christians and transubstantiation and the Romans being like, are you guys like zombie eaters? Are you cannibals? Like what is actually going on? Like it makes sense in our, you know, context of early Christianity, but outside of that to the greater Roman world, they they have no idea. Yes, you have like all of these worldviews within which the Buddhist teachings make sense. Like, for instance, Buddhism is framed as teachings that get you out of this problem of endless rebirth in samsara. But in China, which doesn't have this same conception of rebirth and in which the afterlife is not heavily theorized, it's like, okay, a teaching that helps me get out of a, a problem I don't think that I have, why is that useful to my life? Right. And so you see this kind of like clash of worldviews and ideologies. And so Buddhism is kind of slow to catch on in China. It eventually does around kind of zero CE to BCE. It starts picking up and by about the fifth century CE, it's pretty mainstream. So then we get Xuanzang. Makes sense. The seventh century. And so he is at a time when Buddhism is fairly mainstream, but it is still seen as this foreign, strange religion. 
And folks like Xuanzang are highly aware that they're getting Buddhism through this mediated source. So if you've ever tried to read Buddhist texts in primary source translation, as we're doing for this, you're often encountering words that don't make any sense. And you say, is this me or is this the translation or is this a cultural difference? You know, what errors are being added through the translation process? What am I missing? And so Xuanzang says, you know, I want to get the good stuff. And the good stuff is in India. I'm going to go to India to get the good stuff, bring it back to China and make sure that we don't have the result of like this game of telephone of a text that gets translated and retranslated and people are confused. Xuanzang wants to go back to the source and bring it back to China so that China is getting what at least he sees as authentic, good, you know, great Buddhist philosophy. So it's less of a pilgrimage to a holy place and more of a pilgrimage to gain information and texts and bring it back. Yeah, he is motivated by the fact that he thinks that Buddhism in China imports a lot of translation errors, a lot of errors because of cultural kind of confusion. And because the Chinese texts about Buddhism that he sees have what he sees as contradictions. So you have lots of these different texts making different kinds of claims. And he says, who's right? And how do we decide? And I'm very, very confused. Because you can imagine that Buddhism in India develops over you know, about a thousand years by the time that Xuanzang is getting it. And if you're in India, this process is happening very gradually, these changes. But insofar as China gets all of these texts at once, you're getting texts that make very different claims. And Xuanzang says, this is confusing. There might be errors. Like, I'm going back. Yeah, we're going to go get it. To momentarily bring down the intellectual level of the discourse here, (laughs) Emperor Ashoka, what are the odds that the Jedi is named after him? So, very high. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. So, I've been a guest on various Star Wars podcasts talking about Buddhism because George Lucas was a big reader of Joseph Campbell, who was himself a scholar of religion, primarily himself of the scholar Mircea Eliade. And I have my own Eliade lineage. Eliade taught Jay-Z Smith, who taught people at Chicago, who were my advisors, because I did my master's at the University of Chicago. But Eliade is this huge figure in the history of religion. And he was one of these guys who was kind of trying to find broad patterns across religions. And, you know, all religions are basically one myth, one metaphor about how human life is. And Hero's journey, hero with a thousand faces for yeah, all it's all Joseph Campbell. And yep. George Lucas was like drinking that up. So George Lucas is exposed to a lot of Buddhism, Taoism, various other sorts of mystical things. And all of that gets translated into Star Wars. And what's interesting is like Jediism at times is like Buddhism and at times is like Taoism. And I actually like this is a whole separate podcast, but theorize that a lot of narrative variants and like narrative problems in the Star Wars universe come up because he can't decide whether it's like Buddhism or like Taoism. Oh, that is fascinating. The Force does seem a lot like the Tao. I kind of get that one. Yes. Force is broadly like the Tao. But then also like this, like light side, dark side, there's a lot of buddhist stuff, you know, is balance the goal or is like the light side the goal? Unclear, I think, in the source material, which is why it's so generative of the expanded Star Wars universe. Interesting. I thought that was going to be a dumb nonsense question. I'm glad you actually had something to say about it. <laughs> no, it's it's hugely important. And you get lots of, you know, like the Jedi Order is you know, mm-hmm. arguably modeled on Buddhist monasticism. And, you know, 
in my intro to Buddhism class, I'm trying to remember the exact Yoda quote where it's he's like, fear leads to this, leads to this. Oh, fear, fear leads, leads to, to anger, anger, anger leads to hate. Leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Yes. So I put that up on the board as like a prompt for students to compare it with Buddhist texts and their kind of diagnosis of what leads to what leads to suffering. And it's always a generative thing. I can imagine. I know. Very good. That's very interesting. (laughs) Pop culture with it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. See, now I'm thinking of like how to bring that into like the the monk class in D&D, but that, you know, that's for later. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay. So you've already sort of given us kind of this background about 7th century Buddhism. Is there anything else you think that we need to understand about 7th century Buddhism? And to add to that, what is the general context of Xuanzang's travels? So he is in China. And to get to India, you'd think you'd just like, you know, take a straight line. But the Himalayan mountains are in the way and big jungles around. Um, as as they tend to be. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, he doesn't you know take the straight line. So he goes west into what is now Xinjiang region in Western China, but then through various Central Asian countries in what's now like modern Kyrgyzstan and Pakistan and Afghanistan and gets through to India. And what's really interesting about this time is we often think about history in terms of modern state boundaries, mm-hmm. right? So like we think of China and India as important, but we kind of forget about Central Asia. We think that it's just empty space through which like nomadic horse cultures sometimes, you know, rampage. <laughs> but during this time, you have thriving kingdoms along the Silk Road and they totally exist because the Silk Road exists. And all of these places are highly diverse, and all of them are going through similar things that China is of importing Buddhism and in varying degrees, varying speeds, making it their own. So Buddhism is this highly adaptable cultural form. So for instance, a comparison might be Islam, which also highly adaptable, but in Islam, there's a general sort of rule that Islam has to be in Arabic and Mecca is the center. And so it's relatively more kind of focused. You've got one book, one city, so there's a little mm-hmm. more. Yeah, one language. So mm-hmm. like the Quran is in Arabic. Anything translated into a native tongue is an interpretation. It's not a translation. Whereas we don't even know what language the Buddha spoke. We as scholars do not know. We know that every textual record we have of the Buddha speaking has been altered in some way. But that within wow. these texts is said to be a power of the Buddha. That the Buddha gets up to audiences, he's speaking in India. And India then is now is hugely linguistically diverse. And so you have people speaking mutually unintelligible languages in the audience. They all listen to the Buddha and everyone hears what the Buddha says in their mother tongue. This is like a thing the Buddha is said to be able to do, which becomes a metaphor for the Buddha's teachings are not attached to any language. Translation is highly encouraged. Spread the word. Spread the word. And so Buddhism adapts and changes when it goes places, and it always does so in conversation with the ideas, cultural practices in the places that they already are. So is there an idea of the one true Buddhism? Like, I think a lot of Americans carry this idea of there's one true Christianity or the Catholic Church is the one true Catholic Church. Is that an idea in Buddhism at all? Or is that just totally foreign to the faith? Yes, you have this idea of like the one true dharma, the sadharma, the truth dharma. But the issue is a lot of people claim to have it. Like one thing I'll do in my classes is, you know, so I teach intro to world religions where I make a lot of 
comparisons to Christianity because that's what people in Wyoming will have reference to. <laughs> yep. And, you know, people will say, well, true Christianity is like this. Everyone knows that. And it's like, okay, who else in this class wants to disagree? <laughs> and um, then you get 20 different hands. And it's like, okay, how do we determine which one of you is right? Mm-hmm. And okay, if you're a Catholic, you can appeal to like the Pope, but not all Catholics think that what the Pope says goes. And when you get to Protestants, like that's a thousand different variations. Similarly, Buddhism does not have a Pope. It doesn't have sort of a center. You have various lineages that have their own ideas, but you know, Buddhism's highly diverse. People come up with new ideas and there's always somebody being like, no, that's not what the Buddha taught. And then the people developing new ideas are like, no, this is what he taught. You know, go figure. Yeah. I taught Buddhism one time to a class and I love student typos because they're often revealing. And I had one person say, you know, Buddhism solves the problem of surfing instead of suffering, which was fun. (laughs) But my favorite is someone said the first noble truth of Buddhism is intransigence. And I think they were going (laughs) either impermanence or transience, which is an important Buddhist idea, but not the first noble truth. But this idea of like, the first noble truth of Buddhism is intransigence. Buddhists <laughs> do what they're supposed to do. That would be such a fun religion. Yeah, like, that's awesome. <laughs> the students stumbled on, like, a deep... A deep idea. They had no idea. <laughs> it was just there, bubbling. Mm-hmm. And so, like, to bring it back to the actual question you asked me, he's traveling through these Central Asian regions and then into India. And in each of these places, he is encountering very different Buddhisms very different ideas, very different cultures. And so he's kind of like this wide-eyed traveler just writing stuff down. He's super interested. He's got this anthropological eye. He's interested in how different people do Buddhism differently. And, you know, it's why it's such an important source for historians. Interesting. I love that. That's that's absolutely fascinating. I think it, I don't know, it speaks a lot more to me. It feels much, much more familiar to me now that you've given that context, I think, than I expected it to. And I think that kind of touches on a lot of the, oh gosh, the Orientalism we have in Western texts. When, especially in like medieval texts, Renaissance texts, even into the, you know, 18 and 1900s, we start getting these texts that seek to make, you know, the East very exotic and different and foreign and and whatever. But when you put this in the context of a pilgrimage and touch on these these other touch points that we as like a Judeo-Christian audience, whatever, because I know our audience goes far beyond just America and Europe, but when you have those roots, it feels much, much more familiar than I think a lot of us would expect. Yes, people often, you know, in Buddhism, either they want to see it as like this degraded bad thing in comparison to the good thing that we have, or as like this good thing that is so much better than the bad thing that we have. And in both of those cases, that is a, you know, a fantasy that says more about us. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Awesome. Okay, so our final, like, very general question is, what are some general sources that you would recommend to our audience to gain an understanding of this material? If they're, like, super interested either in Xuanzang or this, like, pilgrimage journey or the Tibetan journeys, things like that, what would you recommend as, like, a go-to reading list? Yeah, and you guys very thoughtfully sent me some questions, and this is the one that I was pondering over. Because in some sense, I was like, are there any like readable sources that I would give to a general audience about Xuanzang? <laughs> and I, you know, I was looking on YouTube too. 
there is like a, a video series that's not terrible by the cool history bros about Schwenzel. <laughs> nice. We will link that. That's 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 a choice for a channel name. Yes. And, you know, it's like, you know, this is better than nothing. You know, these things tend to get written about in like very dense academic sources, which I don't need to tell either of you that like you'd feel guilty recommending to someone. <laughs> Understandable. We don't look, Kate. We don't care about our audience. We are chucking them headfirst into this stuff. We're like, our sources are in the description. Go read them for yourself. So we do often <laughs> throw academic articles at them, but this may be why our audience stays so uh, small. Stay so smart. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So anyway, they're up for it. I think a broad Buddhism source. And this is going to be a little bit of shameless self-promotion for me. I wrote a series of videos for the YouTube channel Religion for Breakfast. So three videos called What is Buddhism? Who was the Buddha? And then I didn't come up with this title, but Buddhist Meditation Explained. And so I wrote them. They're all vetted by scholarly sources, but produced by a guy who, who got his PhD from BU in Near Eastern Christianity. So those videos are, are accessible introductions. And then... These are all like mostly YouTube related. Maybe yours your is more kind of sophisticated than I'm giving them credit for. But for the history of Chinese Buddhism, there's a lot of nice stuff out there because professors during COVID recorded their lectures and they were like, might as well post this online. So there's one on Buddhism in China that Aaron Prophet, who's another scholar of Buddhism, does. And it's on the channel of the American Buddhist Study Center that would help provide more kind of Chinese Buddhism context. But then this Beale translation is available, you know, on archive.org. And it's it's really fun just to read it for the original texture. Yeah. For listeners, the Beale translation is the one we've read from before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's confusing in certain ways, but <laughs> it's, it's got lots of like rich, specific detail that I kind of like in that the actual summary of this material is not very interesting as much as the kind of really specific details are. Mm -hmm. It is frustrating in that the notation they use for non-English words is not a form of notation we use anymore, or at least not one I'm familiar with, so it doesn't actually help with the pronunciation at all. Yeah, you have multiple systems of transcribing Chinese into English, and this is where you get the, you know, Xuanzang will sometimes be spelled H-S-U-A-N-G, Xuanzang. Mm. Um, wow. But then in the more modern system that's typically used today, you get the X right. song. And, yep. you know. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we, we have the same problem with, like, the Irish names and, and things like that. People wrote them down, down differently. Okay. Fabulous. So. So. The text often mentions the great vehicle and the little vehicle. And we've been kind of stumbling over what that's about. Could you... Explain to us uh, what these terms mean. Yes. So broadly speaking, Buddhism is thought of as having two main schools, and much, much scholarly ink has been wasted on this. But generally we can speak of, so there was the Buddha teaching, oral transmissions for many years, written down, and then, you know, sort of present period. The early period of Buddhism is often called sort of mainstream Buddhism, Nikaya Buddhism, sectarian Buddhism, sometimes people say, but we'll just call that mainstream Buddhism. And in mainstream Buddhism, you have an idea of the Buddhist path where everyone starts in this state of greed, hatred, delusion that causes suffering 
and that suffering causes you to be trapped in endless rebirths in life. And that's sort of the human problem is the framework. Right. It leads to the dark side. Yes. <laughs> leads to the hatred, leads to suffering. And then the Buddha preaches that there is another way you can get out of this problem and become awakened. So a Buddha is somebody who discovers the truth of reality, kind of sees through what everyone else has been sleeping through. And then Buddha literally means awakened one. So the Buddha is the one who is awake when everyone else is asleep. And he preaches so that everyone can go from being trapped in their sort of dream state of suffering that they can become awakened to. And that state of becoming awakened is to be an arhat who has attained nirvana or nibbana. So somebody who has become awakened, they won't get reborn anymore, and they've done so based on the teachings of the Buddha. And that is a word our listeners will recognize that we've seen in this text before. And been confused by. Yes, so that makes a lot more sense. Uh, and anyone confused about the Nibbana-Nirvana distinction, those are just two early, two ways of saying the same concept, either in Pali, Nibbana, or Sanskrit, Nirvana. And you can hear that these are closely related languages. Interestingly enough, they're also very closely related to Latin and Greek. Mm -hmm. They're all part of this Indo-European language family. Super different than Chinese, which is why it's so hard to translate from Sanskrit to Chinese. Right. And listeners may or may not know that the reason that people became aware of the fact that a lot of Indian languages and a lot of European languages come from the same root was because when the British started doing horrible things in India, they found out about Sanskrit and they recognized it as being a language that was related to Latin and Greek. Yeah. One thing that I want clarification on before we get into the little vehicle, because all of this was the great vehicle, is that correct? This is what Xuanzang will call the little vehicle. Oh, this is the little vehicle. Yeah, so Xuanzang okay. was using polemic terms. So, oh, and uh, we'll get to that, but Xuanzang is uh, throwing shade at mainstream. Oh, 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 I see. Ooh, okay. So real quick, just to interject here, one thing that I'm, I guess, a little bit confused by, I suppose because it's just so foreign to me, is this idea that we want to stop the cycle of rebirth, mm -hmm. as opposed to like, get increasingly better rebirths. Can you kind of touch on that and explain that a little bit? Because I guess... In my very uneducated brain about this topic in particular, I always considered it was like, oh, well, you like rebirth until you ascend to godhood. But the goal, that's not the goal. The goal is to stop being reincarnated entirely. Yes. Okay. And so it is complicated. So you guys on my screens can see this bhava chakra, this wheel of life. Do that for me. So in classical Buddhist cosmology, and again, as confused as you are about this, think about the Chinese people getting these. Yeah. <laughs> They're equally confused. What are you talking about? They have no about? idea. But in classic Buddhist cosmology, beings are reborn into one of six realms. So you have the god realm, the demigod realm, human, animals, hungry ghosts, hell beings. And in the higher realms, the heavens, that's where the gods live. It's actually deva. So you can see that relation to Greek and Latin right there. Mm-hmm same word that gives us deus mm -hmm. which is just the word for sky in proto-indo-european yeah and so we have this like a lot of the associations that are under the kind of hood of english are totally under the hood of sanskrit as well that like gods and skies and heavens and divine they're all jumbled together yes but the difference is that in a classical buddhist cosmology each of these realms of rebirth is temporary so you can get reborn as a god 
that's great. It's like a vacation in Godland, and everything is perfect and it's great, but your time will run out and you will get reborn into one of the other realms. Similarly, sometimes students come to me and they're like, Buddhism doesn't have hells. It's like a nice, fuzzy, like happy religion. And I say, Buddhism has 16 hells, eight oh. hot, eight cold. And the descriptions of the tortures therein are quite vivid. But let's say you get reborn in one of the hell realms because of something bad you did, also temporary. So you keep getting reborn and reborn in this cycle. And, you know, what does it mean to be a you here? Because people don't necessarily remember, don't remember their rebirths. It's the causal continuum of your mind that sort of gets reborn. And the idea here is that eventually that gets really old. (laughs) Makes sense. You know, heaven's great, but if it's temporary and you have to get reborn and re-die and the whole time you're suffering, you want out of the cycle. Yeah. And this is one of the things that when these texts get translated into European context, again, during colonialism, Europeans find this very strange because we have this kind of bias towards like more life is good life. If you're in heaven, you know, you don't want to leave. And the Buddhist perspective is joy and happiness are still possible, but ultimately transcending this endless cycle of samsara is the way to end suffering and suffering is bad and to be avoided. All right, so possibly dumb question. Once you escape samsara, where do you go? So the Buddha famously had 16 questions he refused to answer. This is one of these <laughs> unanswerable questions. Oh. And, you know, yes. fair enough. And one of them is, well, what happens when you attain nirvana? And the Buddha says, I'm refusing to answer that question because it is an ill-formed question. So an analogy might be if I asked you, like, you know, is the color red seven or eight? You'd say, there's like no right answer there because the question is just totally ill-formed. And so the Buddha, one of the kind of central doctrines of Buddhism is that there is actually no self. There is nothing permanent and independent that makes me me. To get to nirvana, you kind of have to realize that deeply, that there is no self. And so when the Buddha gets the question of like, so what happens to myself when I attain nirvana? He's like, you've got it confused, my friends. So he refuses to answer that question. He refuses to answer generally speculative philosophical questions on the grounds that I care about suffering. And he uses this analogy of imagine a person is out in a field and they get shot by a poisoned arrow and a doctor runs up and says, we got to get this poison arrow out of you. But the person on the ground dying of this arrow wound was like, but wait, what was the cast of the person that shot me? Um, mm-hmm. And what is his job? And what does his dad do? And what kind of poison is this? What kind of... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We got to get the arrow out of you if you're going to live. So the Buddha kind of refuses that kind of speculation, which is inevitably very frustrating for my students and I imagine for you as well. I feel like that's kind of a power move for like a prophet figure, though, to go like, yeah, you know, if you do all the right things, you can you can escape the suffering of life. And then someone's like, where do you what happens then? Don't worry about it. I'm not answering that question. Just just do it. Yeah, Jedi mind trick. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. That's fascinating. Okay, cool. That that clears that up for me. Thank you very much. Uh, another pop culture question. <laughs> Did the Wachowskis also draw from Buddhism? Because when you said there is no self, I immediately started thinking about spoons. Spoons? Oh, I thought you were going to go to the Matrix. That is the Matrix. There is no spoon. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yes, and I, I do show the clip of the little British kid because, of course, they make him white and British. But he's wearing, like, monk's robes, and he's got the spoons. And again, this is one where I show them the pop culture efforts, and I say, how would Buddhists, like, correct this to make it more in doctrine? 
because it is not as though I could go on a Buddhist philosophy tangent here. Is that something that is desirable? Feel free. Feel free. The kid says to Keanu Reeves, there is no spoon. But what Mm. Buddhism would say is not there is no spoon. It's just that the spoon does not exist in the way that you think it does. It doesn't exist permanently, independently, and possessing it won't make you happy. So it is not as though it doesn't exist. So the dangerous path that some people go down when they hear this stuff is, oh, nothing exists. I can do whatever I want. I'm not bound by human morality. And according to Buddhism, that is a wrong and dangerous interpretation that will cause you to be reborn in hell many a time. Because that kind of outlook that nothing exists is nihilism, and Buddhism strenuously denies that. Things do exist. Stuff does matter. Don't kick puppies in the face. Makes sense. Puppies don't exist permanently and independently, but is that a reason to be mean to them? No. No. Also, apparently, you can be reborn as one, so, you know, pay it forward. Not generally as inanimate objects will you be reborn as. Oh, well, I mean, that was puppies. backwards Yoda sentence. <laughs> I meant the puppies. Puppies are animate, I can tell you. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, you may be reborn as a puppy, and every puppy that you see might have was almost certainly your mother in a past life. So don't kick them in the face. That's one of those quotes that I need on my wall. Every puppy you see was almost certainly your mother in a past life. That is a thing that Buddhists say all the time, that all beings were your mother in a past life. And wow. treat them as such. Treat them as such. That makes sense. That That is a good wisdom to carry forward. Okay. I like this. Shall we Shall we return to the, the little and great vehicle? I know that we're only halfway through answering this question, but I do have another <laughs> follow-up. Okay. What is a hungry ghost? Hungry ghosts, um, the word in Sanskrit is preta. So this is the second lowest realm of rebirth. And pretas... It's fun to look these up. Like if you go to Google image search, type in Preta, P-R-E-T-A. This is this class of being. And Pretas are always portrayed in Buddhist art history as having big bellies because they're really hungry, but then teeny little throats through which nothing can pass. So they're really hungry and they're thirsty, but they can't eat anything. And so they wander around reality. And the, the classic Buddhist metaphor is that if you as a human go and you see a river full of water, the preta will go and see it and be like, oh, I'm I'm so thirsty. I want that water. And as they get close to it, the river will be of pus and blood instead. Wow. And they can't drink it. So they're wandering around on this earth, hungry and um, suffering a whole lot. So you don't want to get reborn as a hungry ghost. And often Buddhist rituals will make offerings to hungry ghosts. Like So on a Buddhist altar, you'll make offerings of food. Sometimes that's to the Buddha. Sometimes it's an offering for whatever hungry ghosts are around. Um, So that they don't be so hungry. Can they consume that material if it's left as an offering? Yes. Generally, offerings over which certain kinds of prayers are said are thought to be consumable by hungry ghosts. Again, may have been your mother in a past life. Can they interact with, like, the human world at all? Or just, are they just kind of there? So they're there, and... Buddhist cosmology is super complicated, not least because it is never formally standardized in one place. And so I always present people like kind of like the standard picture, but it gets really complex in lots of places. And so maybe on like the theoretical level, these are planes that kind of coexist and you just experience it one way if you're a human, you experience it a different way if you're a hungry ghost. From the beginning, there are Buddhists who take this really literally. And also Buddhists who say this is a metaphor for how we experience the world. So like a hungry ghost is like a greedy person who consumes, 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 is never satisfied. So right on the one hand, you could say, oh, there's this actual being a hungry ghost around. Or this is a metaphor for how certain kinds of humans 
allow greed to influence how they see the world. Both are present. This makes sense, especially to me, because this is one way that early Christians would argue about how, for instance, the seven days of creation went. Like, was it seven literal days? Was this a metaphorical seven days? Was this an eon? Was a day an eon? Like, how does that work? Is it a metaphor for actually the gospel and it's like stacked on top of each other. Same thing exists in Christianity. Yeah. And that everything is the starting point for debate. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's comforting to know that other cultures have this same, like, is this religious thing real or a metaphor discussion? Yes. And it's like often both and, but yes. So in most Buddhist societies today, people will regard hungry ghosts as potentially a threat you know, sickness might be brought on by them. So particularly when Buddhism goes to China, China has a strong emphasis on filial piety that comes from Confucianism. So you should really care about your ancestors. And so in Chinese Buddhism, this manifests into a lot of concern for your ancestors who are hungry ghosts and making offerings to them, partly to, to help out your ancestors and partly so they don't come back and haunt you. All right. So we talked about the little vehicle, which is the traditional... Mainstream Buddhism, yeah. Yes, mainstream Buddhism. And so now we have the great vehicle, which I suppose Xuanzang likes better because he's using these terms? Yes. Okay. So around the first century BCE to the first century CE within Buddhism, there starts to be this movement that later gets called the Mahayana. And Maha means great, Yana means vehicle. That's how we're getting these terms, great vehicle. And scholars debate endlessly about where this comes from. But Mahayana is kind of this thing that starts in lots of different places in different ways and at different points. And only later does it come to be seen as kind of a cohesive unit. And what the Mahayana involves is new texts. So in mainstream Buddhism, what counts as a scripture, what counts as Buddha Vachana, the speech of the Buddha, is the body of texts that is attributable to the historical Buddha. And then canon gets closed. So more pop culture references. This is actually easier to explain to students now than it used to be because they understand canonicity. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, yeah, I guess that wasn't exactly a common term, you know, like 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Wait, so are you saying that the great vehicle is the expanded universe of Buddhism? You betcha. <laughs> Heck yeah! Yeah, so mainstream Buddhism has a fairly closed canon. You know, caveat for any Buddhist study scholars who are listening to this, don't at me. Like, I understand that it's not as closed as people like to think it is. For our purposes here today, it is a closed canon. This is explain it to me like I'm five version. Mahayana starts to open the canon, and they start to say, actually, what the Buddha spoke is maybe more things. So certain Mahayana texts will claim that they are preached by the Buddha, but then hidden because the Buddha knew that people at that time weren't ready for it. So it would be refound at a later time when people are ready for it. Mahayana also vastly expands the cosmology of Buddhism. So in mainstream Buddhism, one Buddha per world eon. In Mahayana, you start to have multiple Buddha verses, Buddha universes, Buddha fields, Buddha Kshetra is the Sanskrit, but you start to have multiple kind of Buddha dimensions. And in each of them, there's a Buddha preaching. And so you can have, like, if you're meditating or have a visionary experience or in a dream, like get preached to it by a different Buddha in a different universe. And you write that down and that counts as a Buddhist text now, or things that just get like found in rocks. And also Mahayana starts to develop a doctrine of anything that is well-spoken is, is Buddha Vajana. 
You know, yep. so it vastly expands the number of texts that get to count as Buddhism. I'm sorry, when you say things found in rocks, what what are you referring to? I think we've seen this in one of these stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where you'll find, um, you know, so I'm, I'm especially thinking of the Tibetan version of this treasure hunting. So we're like hidden in a cave. <laughs> There's a Buddhist text and you might get like some signs and you, you got to go find the text or it gets recovered from a dream or you find it a scroll like hidden under the ground. And there's actually some scholars who are trying to kind of make this historical. And early Buddhists did used to write texts and bury them in pots. And so maybe someone found one of these and this like started this idea. Also, you know, people come up with stuff. Yep. You start to have lots of different texts coming from kind of everywhere. Yeah. And these texts contain a lot of new ideas. The most important for our purposes today is the Bodhisattva ideal and a Sattva is a being, Bodhi, awakening, so a being who is set on awakening. And a Bodhisattva is a kind of being who vows to attain awakening for the sake of all beings. So if the Arhat, which is this awakened figure in mainstream Buddhism, is trying to get out of samsara, in Mahayana Buddhism, you have the figure of the Bodhisattva who says, we're all getting enlightened, and aims at getting all beings enlightened. So it kind of takes... and the podcast listeners can't see this, but I'm holding my hand. So OG Buddhism, mainstream Buddhism, you start in samsara and suffering. Goal is to become an arhat. Mahayana deliberately moves the goalpost to all beings get enlightened is the kind of aspirational final state. And a bodhisattva is a being who's trying to get all beings there. Got so it's somebody it. who willingly takes on this extra burden to save all beings. And because I have to ask this, because I've, I've done a bunch of theology studies, Christianity studies. Is this something that, because this feels like a Jesus figure to me, is this something that everybody is just yeeted into nirvana? Or is this something that you have to take on and choose, even if the, I'm sorry, the Bodhis Bodhisattva? Me, yes, the Bodhisattva is like giving, you still have to take it? How, do, like, how does that work? Yeah, so hugely interesting question. So what I'll say is that this Mahayana doctrine means kind of two things for two different groups of Mahayana Buddhists. You think about your like really aspirational monks who aspire to bodhisattvahood, they're taking on this extra responsibility. And for your Buddhist lay people, you start to have the idea that really powerful bodhisattvas can kind of pull you up the Buddhist path. So the Buddhist path, this marga in Sanskrit is this constant Buddhist idea, but the goal of going from ordinary suffering to awakening and there's always this question of, is it like a staircase where you power yourself up by your own power? Or is it like an escalator where you just got to get on and it pulls you? And the stereotype is that mainstream Buddhism, you go up on your own accord. It's like a staircase. And that in Mahayana Buddhism, it starts to be like an escalator where you are pulled to the top. I will say both of those are exaggerations to some extent. For sure. But that difference in emphasis is broadly speaking helpful. Got it. And so you start to have um, in Mahayana Buddhism, the notion that like, very powerful bodhisattvas can kind of like pluck people out of samsara and help them out. And do, do they do this by like spiritual teaching or just by like force of will or something? You build up enough good karma. So um, and I know that this is the karma and merit is on the list of questions. So it is. I'll give you the example of one bodhisattva in particular, Amitabha. And Amitabha is the protagonist of 
the Pure Land Sutra, the Sakavati Vyuha Sutra, which seems to have been written in India some point, maybe second, first century AD. And the story there is of just a random guy who says, you know, I want to help all beings escape suffering. And it's not enough, like, what do I have to do to help all beings attain awakening? I've got to eliminate all of the barriers to suffering that exist in this world. Nobody has enough time. The world is difficult and ugly, and there's no Buddha in our current period. So I'm going to create a place where none of those barriers exist, and that's called the Pure Land. So this guy attains enough good karma, enough merit over bajillions of lifetimes. This takes a long, long time. Eventually, he attains enough karma power to essentially create a new universe called the Pure Land, Sukhavati. And that he has the power that anyone who prays to him or says his name will get reborn in the Pure Land. And then when you're in the Pure Land, there's a Buddha preaching. It's wonderful. You live a long time. It's very nice. And then you attain enlightenment from there. So the Pure Land becomes kind of this like very nice purgatory from which you attain enlightenment. And that's called Pure Land Buddhism, and it is arguably the most popular form of Buddhism practiced today. And yet it is almost unknown to people in the U.S. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. Although it, I can see why it's appealing. That's That sounds very nice to go like, capitalism gets in the way of enlightenment. How about you come to this like <laughs> idyllic paradise where you can take as much time as you need to become enlightened? Yeah, this is, I mean, who can turn down that pitch? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all you got to do is say a guy's name? Yeah. Anamo Amitabha Butsu is the way it gets rendered in Japanese, where the most popular Pure Land schools um, exist today. Wow. Interesting. All right. And just because of the way Buddhism has come to the U.S., where like kind of meditation-based Buddhism is what gets plucked out through colonialism to be like the kind of Buddhism that comes to predominantly white European American context, this other very popular form of Buddhism gets entirely left out. Of course, there's lots of Asian American immigrants from Japanese communities, especially who have been practicing this in the U.S. since the 1850s to 1880s, but they get sort of forgotten. Right. Makes sense. Okay. All right. So since we've already touched on it a little bit, could you explain karma and religious merit and how we're meant to understand these? Yeah. And I'll just say one final thing about the great vehicle, little vehicle distinction. Oh, yeah. So the folks in Mahayana think of themselves as having like, you know, we're... We're the great vehicle because we truly understand the goal. Those little vehicle morons, they only, you know, they're good, <laughs> but they, they don't really understand the goal of getting all beings free of suffering. And so Mahayana calls themselves the great vehicle, and they invent this name for mainstream Buddhism, Hinayana, the lesser vehicle. You know, we're driving the Cadillac of Buddhisms, and you're driving the crappy Honda Civic of Buddhisms. But no mainstream Buddhist would think of themselves as having the lesser vehicle. And today, the form of mainstream Buddhism that survives is Theravada Buddhism. This is practiced in Southeast Asia. Mahayana largely goes to China, East Asia, Tibet. They kind of geographically separate. But Mahayana thinks of itself as the better form of Buddhism. And Theravada, they don't think about Mahayana at all. <laughs> Makes sense. So yes, so this concept of religious merit. Yes. So karma, the Sanskrit word, is from the root kur, which literally means action. So to do karma is a thing done. It is an action. And so karma is the karma is actions and actions have consequences. So karma, if you do good stuff, good stuff will happen to you, whether in this life or a future life. If you do bad stuff, bad stuff will happen to you, whether in this life or a future life. And religious merit is kind of broadly within this context. And so 
a lay person, your average like Joe Buddhist, they don't see enlightenment as a realistic goal in this lifetime. That is many lifetimes away. Their goal in this lifetime is to accumulate as much good karma as possible so that in a future lifetime, they can be in a position to attain awakening. But for 99% of Buddhists throughout history, they wouldn't have seen enlightenment as a goal. They would have never meditated a day in their lives. They would have not done Buddhist philosophy. They wouldn't have been reading Buddhist texts necessarily. They would have been trying to generate merit by making donations, by making offerings to monks, by chanting sutras, by listening to Dharma teachings, by following the precepts and not doing bad stuff. Makes sense. That's interesting to, to know that it's that like the focus was more on be a good person and in a future lifetime, you'll do the meditation thing. But right now, just like be a good person. Start small. Yeah. It's very interesting teaching world religions because people will show up in classes and be like, well, what do Buddhists think of as good? And the five lay precepts that lay people are expected to follow are don't kill people, don't steal, don't lie, no sexual misconduct, and don't take intoxicants. So it's not particularly different in terms of like your basic good and bad. Pretty standard set. Pretty standard. Yeah, I feel like if you if you ask the average American for five rules about what good people would do, they would give you pretty much that. I am concerned about those those last two, generally, but... Mm -hmm. Yes, and how sexual misconduct gets defined. That was mostly what I was concerned about, yes. Varies different places, different people will tell you different stuff. And also, lay people often don't take that fifth vow, so... <laughs> You know, it's better to not take a vow than to take it and break it. So lots of people don't take that vow against intoxicants. So it's optional. Like you can just say, like, I'm I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna be that good this time around. I'm going to only do four of these five. Yeah. So this concept of the Buddhist path built into that is an understanding that different people are at different points on the path. So if you're further along the path, you might be a monk or a nun and you might do advanced meditation. Most people are pretty early on the path and at each stage on the path, there are things that are appropriate to do at that stage of the path, and there are things that are like not expected of you. So if you're early in this stage in the Buddhist path, you're not expected to become a monk or a nun. That's just like not in the cards for this rebirth. And so some people will be like, guess it's not in the cards for me to not drink this life. I kind of want to keep drinking. In a future life, maybe I'll take a vow against intoxicants. And people will want to do that and yet also say... In this life, that's that's that's, that's not, not it right now. I kind of appreciate the vibe of this. Mm -hmm. It's very forgiving. I I like how forgiving it is as a as a path as a faith. Yeah. Yeah, and as always, Buddhists are intransigent. <laughs> yeah, expected to do at all times. Makes sense. Okay, so to a couple more concrete things that we've covered in these stories, relics and is it stupa stupa stupa. Stupa. They play a significant background if you say stupa. It's that's very different. Yeah, that's why I was wondering. I was like, I don't know what that's I don't know what the right one is. But uh Relic and Stupas play a significant role in many of these stories. Can you talk a little bit about both their cultural and spiritual significance? Because we've we've come upon these um a lot. One of my favorite stories that we covered was like the what did we call him the the shrine slime guy because he oh the guy who got like squished into the shrine he went into the stupa with the, and with a relic and it, relics out and of it, it and, and it, clo oh, it no, closed around stuck. no he brought a relic into the stupa and it closed around him oh and so there was just goo coming out that was what was left of him oh god <laughs> was that framed no, that, as that sticks in the mind 
I it was framed as kind of a positive thing. So, you know, maybe maybe he found enlightenment there or or he was sent on to his next life yeah, no matter it's, what. It's a shortcut to his next life. Which yeah. is presumably better because he put a relic in a shrine where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was generally a good thing. Yeah. So a relic is a, the, the term in Sanskrit is sharira, literally meaning like body. And it's bits of the body of the Buddha. So the Buddha lived until he was 80 and then he died and he was burned. So cremated. And when he was cremated, there was stuff left. And this is often even today said to be a thing that will happen if you cremate a Buddhist holy person, that there will be like little hard bits left and that the more little bits that are left that are hard, like those are markers of like this person attained a lot. We came across that one in an earlier story too. I remember this because I was speculating as like, ah, if I were an unscrupulous holy man, I would just swallow some pearls ahead of time and then people would think I was very enlightened. Oh, that's right. He ate pearls. One of these guys. No, no, he didn't eat pearls. I said he ate the pearls. Oh, oh, but there were, oh, there were pearls left afterwards. That's mm-hmm. right. That's yeah, right. little like bits that are bits. You know, then highly covetable. And relics occur, of course, in medieval Christianity too. Like if you've got a bit of mm-hmm. the cross or the a shroud or like a bit of Jesus, like that's something it's to worship. Complicated since, there, since uh, the doctrine kind of, requires there to be very few bits of the actual Jesus available. Well, see, that's why my favorite relic of all time is Jesus's foreskin, because that is the only physical piece of Jesus that you could possibly have left. I've got a book about that one. That's amazing. Because, you you know, the the rest, the rest, (laughs) like, went went up or whatever. I don't know. I'm not really Yeah, yeah. But, like, he was presumably um, circumcised, and so obviously that bit would be left behind. It is, so this is a Buddhist fun fact. So the Buddha famously has 32 marks of a a great man. And one of them, scholars debate how to translate this, but he has a sheathed penis. And so some people are like, does that mean he's like kind of like a Ken doll? Or does that mean that he's like uncircumcised? Or like people really debate how to interpret this. I mean, my first thought was that does sound like uncircumcised. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Buddha's also supposed to have blue eyes, golden skin. You know how the Buddha often looks like he's got like a top knot? Mm. Yeah. That's not hair. That's just part of his head. It's called the Ushanisha. And it is a fleshy protuberance. Where, where did they I'm learning come up so with this much. list of things? You know, there is this general sort of, again, part of South Asian cosmology is that if you're a holy person, that will show up in your physical presentation. You know, like if you're a holy person, you will like look a certain kind of way. And the Buddha is canonically super attractive. And there's some that, and I always, I show this to students as part of like a, beauty standards are always historical. But this was like the picture of like, you know, like a really attractive person. But the Buddha canonically has like a unibrow. He's got a really long tongue. When he stands, his hands go down to his knees, which is, if you try it yourself, it's like very long arms. He has webbed fingers and toes. He has little wheels on his palms. You know, I was going to say that, like, all the depictions of, of Siddhartha Gautama, like, yeah, that's an attractive man, but I, I did not know these details. Yes. There's certain things that, like, make it into the iconography and certain things that don't, but if listeners want to have a good time, look up 32 marks of the Buddha, and the Wikipedia list alone is, like, is very... I'm noting this one down. ...comes off as very silly. And I say all of this not to be very sacrilegious, but just, again, 
to think about the relationship between physical appearance and moral virtue as it was conceptualized in the time when the Buddha was alive. Yeah, makes sense. Because again, that's one of those things that was carried over into medieval Christianity as well, is that if you look beautiful and you have wealth, you must also be holy. If you have power, you must also be holy. Honestly, that's still a thing in modern American culture. Well, true. From Disney movies on up. Yep. And it gets represented in the artwork as, you know, Christian medieval saints will have halos, right? To show yep. kind of like their, their attractiveness. The Buddha is always depicted with a halo. Interesting. Makes Just sense. Like showing that he's like shining. Holy. Right. All right. I feel like we've gotten off on a tangent. Relics and stupas is where we started. Oh, yes, the stupas. And then as soon as you told us about the bits left behind, we kind of went off in a different direction. <laughs> There's bits? <laughs> Bits and bobs. So bits and bobs of the Buddha that get left behind become these important sacred things that are coveted. So in the story that we're about to read, Uruasena wants to go to Kushinagar where the Buddha dies to get his share of the relics because he wants some of the bits to take back. And they're, they're, they're held to have sort of like quasi magical powers, but also they're centers for remembrance. So my PhD is in Buddhist studies, but I specialize in the history of pilgrimage. And so it's really interesting that pilgrimage comes up as this important Buddhist practice and remembering the now absent Buddha is a super important thing across Buddhist cultures. And so when you have a physical object that becomes the kind of focal point for that, those objects become very important. And it's worth saying that today, if you were to add up all of the things that are said to be Buddha's relics, the Buddha was like, 50,000 pounds because like these there's a lot yep. of them. I was going to ask how many bits were left behind. Yeah, and and this is another thing where it's like who says? So you have lots right. of things claimed to be Buddha's relics just as you have in Christianity and you know there's no central authority in charge of figuring out what's what. But also within Buddhism, the relics are thought to be able to magically multiply at will. So wow. there's a perfectly legible explanation for why there's so many of them. That is a good solution. That's smart. I like that. <laughs> you know, get yourself some relics, set yourself up a stupa next term. So a stupa is a burial mound. So originally, you know, in the general understanding, every stupa has some relics at the center of it. In practice, who knows? But these stupas are often these round mounds with hopefully a relic at the center of it, but the stupa themselves comes to represent the body of the Buddha. And so they become focal points for worship, pilgrimage, etc., And focal points for Buddhist communities and things like that. Makes sense. So maybe shrine, which is the version that our translation goes with, is maybe not the most accurate word. Yeah, it's, you know, one of these mounds. Shall we move on to our final specific question? Yes, I assumed that this was something that if I didn't include, Zoe would be upset with me. So Nagas play a particularly heavy role in this text in particular for some specific reason. And a lot of the time, Nagas are very holy arhats in themselves. Or at least have some kind of relation with them. I know that one of the with, yeah. one of the stories we read had being reborn as a naga be a punishment, which seems that's true. Which seems weird to me because like they're giant flying snakes. Like that seems bad. Like I don't see the problem. Yeah, but sometimes yes, yeah, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. And I was just wondering, like, can you tell us more about the nagas? And particularly, like, when is it a good thing? When is it a bad thing? We've seen both. Yeah, so Nagas are generally some sort of snake being. Sometimes it gets translated as demon, 
and their associations are with water and with being underground and with being associated with jewels a lot of the time. And so sometimes like always Nagas are seen as like beautiful. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can see how you get dragon. Yeah. And so during the Buddhist time, there's all sorts of non-human beings wandering around, like lots of different kinds of demons. And it's really fun, you know, if you to figure out how to translate all of these terms, right? Like, because then you have to, you know, be like, is this kind of weird being that drinks blood? Is it like a vampire or is it like a werewolf or is it, you know, right? We have these kind of monstrous taxonomies. We have the same thing in Norse literature with revenants. That's something our, our listeners will be very familiar with. Like, is it a zombie? Like, what what are actually these things? Are they ghosts? And a scholar that I will recommend about this, and we can put it in the the, the show, show notes, notes. Yep. But a scholar who specializes in Buddhism and monsters and is interested in sort of like cross-cultural like monstrosity. Um, and her name is Natasha Michaels, teaches at uh, Texas State. And has written a lot about these. And there's certain interesting ways in which certain Tibetan monsters get picked up by contemporary, you know, paranormal communities. And the history of this is is very complicated. And it's also never standardized. So there's no text that finally says like, okay, here's the lines and here's what counts as what. In some ways, it never has to get said because it is assumed by everyone in the world. And so nobody sits down yep. and says, oh, this is what Nagas are. Everybody knows what Nagas are. Yeah, I feel like a lot of monsters in most cultures are like that. It's not until like the modern era when people started trying to like taxonomize like, them. <laughs> yeah. And so you have like all these different like tree spirits and this spirit and that demon. And that and, and so Nagas are a particularly prominent class. And so they can take on human form. They can take on snake form. Sometimes they kind of have both. And they are sometimes good. So for instance... When the Buddha is about to attain enlightenment, he's seated under the Bodhi tree. He is like on the precipice of enlightenment and a great storm comes up and the Nagas in the place that he is sort of appear behind him and unfurl their little cobra hoods to protect him from the rain so that he can finally attain a awakening. I would find that so much more distracting than being rained on. <laughs> a fun source to watch on this. So there's a film called The Little Buddha starring Keanu Reeves as the Buddha. You know, How does he always get mixed up in this? No, I can see it. I can see it. Keanu Reeves does strike me as a very enlightened man. Yeah. And especially like, um, oh, wait, what's the surfing movie with Keanu Reeves in it? And Patrick oh Swayze gosh. as Bodhi, short for oh. Bodhisattva. Oh my gosh. No, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm blanking on, on them. I'm blanking on it. But it's it's not Top Gun. It, but it's, some, it's, a, it's two words. Point Break. So is point, it break. point Break. Point Break. Yeah. Yep. Break. Oh my gosh. So there's like an extended Buddhism theme through Keanu Reeves' work. That's wild. I wonder if that's on, on purpose. Like, is he Buddhist himself? It's an interesting question. I, I don't actually know. I know that Keanu Reeves does have at least some degree of Asian background. Like, they still shouldn't have cast him as the Buddha, but he is not entirely of Euro-American white. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I think he also just like kind of has like a good vibe to him, and he often looks either confused or enlightened, depending on your perspective. I mean, same. That's same. true. I feel like those two are are easy to mistake for one another. But so they he stars in the Little Buddha as the Buddha. They get out the gold spray paint and they make his hair as like hideous as possible. It's worth looking this up on YouTube. That's amazing because he it's uh, I think Martin Scorsese directed this movie. It was like a passion project of his. It's a very bizarre movie. But there's a scene in which Keanu Reeves is meditating and the snakes come up behind him. 
and you can see it, and it's real fun. Wow. Also, according to Wikipedia, Keanu Reeves refuses to discuss his spiritual beliefs. Good for Keanu Reeves. That's, yeah, it's fair. <laughs> Whatever he's doing, it's working for him. He is sure. a beacon of positivity and seemingly a, a good human being. Yeah. He seems, seems like a like nice it. guy from what I know. <laughs> and so Nagas have this positive valence sometimes that they will like protect the Buddha. Or sometimes, like for instance, when I said, oh, the Mahayana will find teachings random places, often they will be entrusted to Nagas. And the Nagas will keep them and then give them back to humans at certain points. So sometimes they're good. But other times they're kind of like evil or dark or spooky or tricksy. Yep. And so they're often, yeah, I mean, in this story, they're, it's considered a lower rebirth. For the life of me, I was like, well, where do Nagas fit in the, you know, realms of rebirth? And I couldn't figure it out. I heard, I saw different conflicting things. I was like, are they yeah. demigods? Are they animals? Are they? Well, it, it makes sense. It would almost make sense to me that it kind of they're kind of along that like humanoid form. And there's, there's this idea. I, I think Zoe and I were thinking the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's this idea in Nordic literature that there are human beings and non-human human beings. So like trolls, elves, nagas, humanoid creatures dragons. are also dragons within. Count. Oh, dragon. Yeah. Dragons, yeah, dragons are non-human yeah. human beings. So there's this other class. So I wonder if that's applicable. Yeah, and that to some degree, like, you know, so a lot of these stories and cosmologies and ideas about monsters probably existed before Buddhism, and Buddhism tries to, like, domesticate it into their system, but... Make a fit. Whether or not it's successful, you know, is not my place to judge, but you just have this class of beings that exist in this world. And it's interesting insofar as, so, Xuanzang reports stuff that he has seen, but he also just will write down a story if someone tells it to him. And so this is him writing down a story. And so in some ways, this is almost like departure from reality. Some of Xuanzang can be kind of verite. At other times, he reports things that are pretty miraculous. And at other times, he's just, you know, writing down stories people told him. Yep. One of the things I enjoy about it, which is something I enjoy about medieval literature in general, is that there's no separation between, like, the real and the magical. It's like, I'm going on a perfectly real journey, and also, this mountain pass is full of demons. And, like, that's that's real to him. Yeah, and it's utterly unremarkable. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. Like, it's just, like, just a couple sentences just going, like, yeah, apparently this pass has demons. Like, Good to know. Back to my story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, you know, folks that are really interested in Buddhism in the modern world often want to see Buddhism as this rational religion that doesn't have supernatural elements. And that's partially because colonial era translators deliberately stripped out a lot of what they saw as superstitious nonsense and tried to construct this pure form of Buddhism that they approved of, you know, mm. which has like a lot of, you know, colonial era person going to Asia and telling the Asian Buddhists that they're doing it wrong energy. Of course. As with most things, colonialism is the villain. Yes. Hey y'all, Future Mac here. At this point in the episode, we move from the interview portion to the story portion, so I'm going to be splitting the episode into two parts here. I apologize for the relative shortness of part one in comparison to most of our other episodes, unless you're one of those people who doesn't like long podcasts, in which case, you're welcome. So, we'll be back next time 
with a story from the Great Tang Records of the Western Regions and commentary thereon by Dr. Kate Hartman. I'd like to say see you then, but this is a one-way audio medium, so we will not see you, but you will hear us, we hope. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. 